0: Seats, we'll go ahead and get started. Let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now, and forever. Amen. Somebody said to me, are we still in Ephesians? And the answer is, of course, I know. We were supposed to start the book of Revelation, but uh, we'll get there. And, um, and if the Lord comes before we get there, well, he'll tell you all about it. You won't have to worry about it. But we are working our way through Ephesians, and we want to do it justice. So, best laid plans of mice and men. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17, we're going to go ahead and read through the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self We have a wonderful expression, it's called, when in Rome, what? Do as the Romans do. I have a story that relates to this. When I was in seminary, um, we were encouraged in our first year uh, to go and visit different fieldwork parishes, potential sites where we could work over the course of our three years of education, where we were doing our graduate studies. And uh, So the first year, you weren't assigned to a parish, you could shop around. And so that whole first year, I had the opportunity to go through parishes throughout the diocese of Virginia, diocese of Maryland, and diocese of Washington, because they were all right there. The seminary was located in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, sometimes we would go with, you know, other seminarians uh, just to check out a parish and see what it would be like. And uh, this was in the middle of Holy Week, and somebody recommended. Now they knew where I came from. They knew that I came from uh, the diocese of Pittsburgh, which was a conservative diocese and um, uh, they decided to play a nasty joke on me and a friend of mine who was from the Diocese of South Carolina. Um, And um, They said, you guys need to go, we we know just the church where you're going to serve. They said, you need to go to St. James Capitol Hill. Now, What I did not know at the time was that St. James Capitol Hill was known on the seminary campus as St. James the (laughs) Bazaar. So uh, this fellow, Craig Smalley, some of you may recall Craig Smalley, he was at the cathedral for a time here in the diocese. He's now in the Diocese of Alabama. But Craig Smalley and I, and Craig came from the Diocese of South Carolina, sort of low church evangelical. I came from the Diocese of Pittsburgh, more high church but still evangelical. And uh, we were used to, you know, sort of straightforward prayer book liturgy. And we showed up at St. James on Capitol Hill on Good Friday. And all I can tell you is that that parish was more Catholic than the Pope. I mean, and we're sitting there in the congregation and there was clouds of incense and everything was being chanted and I was feeling a little woozy and at one point in the service they brought in this life-size crucifix. Now, we would bring in a cross during our Good Friday service. They brought in this life-size crucifix with the corpus, the body, on the cross. And all of a sudden, the ushers began coming up the aisle and and opening the doors to the pews, and people got out on their knees and began going up on their knees up to this crucifix and kissing its feet. And I looked at Craig, and (laughs) Craig looked at me, and... I didn't know what to do. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I don't know what to do either. And we were just getting more and more nervous and queasy, and the sweat was pouring down, and and, and there came the usher up to the door, and I looked at Craig. Thank God he was on the end. And I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, when in Rome. (laughs) (laughs) He got out, and he went up the aisle on his knees, and I followed dutifully, and we never went back to St. James the Bazaar. Sometimes we think that's the best way to do if you're in a particular situation, a particular context or culture. we just got to sort of blend in as, as much as possible. Don't stand out. That's the last thing that we want to do. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Well, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul here in this portion of the letter to the Ephesians makes it very clear that is the one thing we are not supposed to do. What he says here is that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. We are not to walk as the world, we are to be different from the world. It's by living differently, it's by acting differently, it's by talking differently that people realize that we are different, and then they begin to ask the question, why are we different? And it gives us the opportunity, you see, to share our faith. Now that can make life pretty uncomfortable. Uh, It is much easier to blend in. It is much easier to do the things that make us acceptable. But Paul says that's the one thing we should not do. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We are to live differently. How do the Gentiles walk? Paul suggests a couple of things to us here. First of all, he says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. For they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their hearts. Paul says there are two problems with the world and people who live in a worldly way. The first, he says, is that their minds, their thinking, have become futile, futile. A passage that you've heard me read many times before is 2 Timothy chapter 3, you know it. Almost by our heart, as many times as I've read it, Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. He says, avoid such people. He goes on in verse 6 to say, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak people, I should say weak people, weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. And then he says this in verse 7, Always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always learning, but somehow never able to arrive at the truth. Paul says that is a description of the Greco-Roman world, the Greeks put a lot of stock in worldly wisdom. That's one of the things they prided themselves on. They had a tendency to look down on the Romans. The Romans, of course, looked down on the Greeks as has-beens. The Greeks looked looked down on the Romans as upstarts. But the one thing the Greeks prided themselves in, the Romans prided themselves in their efficiency. The Greeks prided themselves in their intellect. But Paul says they were always learning, but somehow never coming to understanding. You know there's a difference between those two things? There's a difference between knowledge and understanding, or perhaps a better way of putting it is to say that there is a profound difference between knowledge and wisdom. We oftentimes don't understand that distinction, and part of the reason for that is we live in an information age. If you have any questions about anything at all, all you need to do is get on the computer or on your smartphone and hit the search engine. Google it, and Google could tell you practically anything I had a problem with my automobile. I have an old car, it's a clunker. My wife has a new car. I don't know what the standard here is, but she has this new car, and I have this old car that's about 14 years old, and I was driving around. And one night, I got in, run to the grocery store, turned on the car, and realized as I was going down the street, I had no headlights. And no matter what I tried, there were automatic headlights. They would not come on. So you know what I did? I Googled it. (laughs) I Googled it, I put in the, the, the make of the car, the year, and uh, it told me what was wrong. I needed a relay switch. And so the next day I went to the Autopod store, I told them what kind of car I had, they gave me the relay switch, I googled how to put it in, I had to Google actually how to open the hood. It was, I couldn't figure that out. But once I got the hood open, I, I, I Googled how to put in the relay switch, and the lights came on. And the, the next night, uh, Kristen asked me to go pick up the kids. And I said, I'm going to take my card. She said, well, you don't have any lights. I said, I do have lights. And she said, what do you mean you have lights? I said, I got the relay switch. She said, well, who put it in? I said, I put it in. She said, you. She just could not believe that I had that ability to do that. You know, Google could provide you with all kinds of information. What it cannot provide you with is wisdom. What is wisdom? It is the ability, a God-given ability, to know what to do with that knowledge, how to employ it in the service of God and in the service of others. Science, for example, can tell us how to split an atom. It cannot answer the question, should we split the atom? Science can tell us how to clone a sheep. It cannot tell us whether or not we should clone a sheep. For that, we need something beyond mere knowledge, we need Wisdom, and that is the very thing, Paul says, that is lacking in the culture of the first century, and it is the very thing, I would suggest to you, that is lacking in the culture of the 21st century. And Paul says we are not to be like that. Always learning, but never really understanding the things that really matter that are of the most significance. So we are to seek not only knowledge, but wisdom. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not suggesting to you that education is a bad thing. I'm a great proponent of education. In fact, when I think about the people who've been used by God most in biblical history, in the Old Testament, the person that was used more than anybody else, perhaps, by God, was Moses. And Moses had what we would call a very fine secular education. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. And he was trained in all the ways of the Egyptians. So this was a very highly educated individual. When you think of the person who was used more than anybody else in the New Testament, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, who would it be? It has to be the Apostle Paul, and Paul, as we know, had a very fine classical education. He was trained, of course, as a Jewish religious leader, as a Pharisee, under one of the foremost rabbis of his day, Gamaliel, but he was also trained in the classics. He grew up in Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey today. It was a great university city. And Paul, as the son of a Roman citizen and a Roman citizen himself, had access to all of the advantages of that secular world, that secular education. And we know that he was well trained in these things because when he debated the philosophers in Athens on Mars Hill, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, he was able to quote to them some of their own teachers, Cleanthes and Oratus and others. Now, Peter and James and John would have never been able to do that, but Paul could. So there's nothing wrong with an education, provided you know what to do with that education, provided that you realize that there is a higher calling than just learning. It is to take the information, it is to take the knowledge and put it to use in the service of God and the service of His people. But that's not what's happening in the world, Paul says. They're ever learning, but they are never coming to a knowledge of the truth. He said we are not to be like that. We are to walk out of step with that world. The second thing he says about them is that they are hard of heart, in the hardness of their hearts. Now, the Greek word here is an interesting word. It is the word porosis or poros. It literally means marble or calloused. Paul says the problem with the people of this age. And when he says this age, he means our age. We said the end times means that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and His return in glory. He said the problem with the people of this age is twofold. One, they have great education, but they don't have wisdom. And the second problem, he said, is that they have a hard heart. They have a hard heart. Now, what's the problem with a hard heart? And actually, he said, it is the, the futility of minds that results from the hard heart. Why is that? Well, I think Jesus explains it in one of His parables. We call it the parable of the sower. But actually, the parable is not about the sower or the seed. It's about the soil. You remember the story, Jesus said a sower went out to sow seed one day, and in those days you went out with a haversack filled with seed. If you've seen the um, symbol for Simon & Schuster Publishing Company, it's a sower, and this is how sowers would sow. You'd reach into that haversack, you'd take a handful of seed, having plowed your field, you would throw it out liberally. and The seed would fall on various types of soil and Jesus acknowledges that. Uh, People in that agrarian culture would have understood this image, it would have been very familiar to them. And He said some of the seed falls on fertile soil and, and, and it grows up. Some of it falls on rocky soil, doesn't have much root and it springs up and the sun comes out and scorches it and it dies. Some of it falls among thorns and thistles. It's fertile soil, but it grows up in the the cares of the world, Jesus said, chokes the life out. He said, but some of it falls on the hard path. That's what Paul is talking about, the hard path. And Jesus says the seed that falls on the hard path simply glances off. And the birds of the air come down and snatch it away in whatever potential life it might have. And he said, some people's hearts, and that's really what the four soils are supposed to represent, people's hearts He said, some people's hearts are fertile soil. And when the word of God is thrown out, they receive it with joy, and it springs up and brings life, and furthermore, it produces fruit. He said, some people's hearts, however, are like that rocky soil. They hear the gospel, and there's that initial excitement... Oh, yes, this is wonderful. That preacher's, oh, right. And boy, that choir's okay. And they get real excited about churchy things. And then all of a sudden, you know what happens. Difficulty comes into their life. The sun begins to shine a little bit. They discover that the church is actually filled with people who aren't perfect. That's not the case at St. Philip's. But in other places, you will discover that that's often the case. And what happens is what? They find themselves scorched, and they wither, and they fall away. On Jesus said, other seed fell on what? Well, fertile soil, but the cares, the, the thorns, the thistles, that is to say, the worries of this life, the desire for vainglory and wealth, choke out the life that otherwise might have been. Some years ago, I was visiting uh, the Biltmore Estate um, in, New- in uh, North Carolina, and uh, I, I, one guess as to which was my favorite room in the Biltmore. The library, that's, that's right. I was absolutely pea-green with envy. Uh, of that library. And in those days when I first went there, uh, they didn't have these acoustic guides, you had a docent. And the docent was taking us through and telling us about the kinds of books that he was interested in. And he was particularly interested, she said, in history, art, and theology. Now when I heard theology, my antenna went up. And at the end of the, uh, the tour, um, we had a time to ask questions, people were going out, and I went up to her and I said, tell me. I said. He was interested in theology, what's all that about? And she said, well, actually at one point he thought about becoming a priest. I said, you're kidding. I wasn't in clerical, so she didn't have any idea. I said, you're kidding. I said, well, why didn't he? And she said, sir, (laughs) look around you. Let's just say he had a few distractions. And Jesus said some people's lives are like that. There are all these distractions that would otherwise choke out the spiritual life. But he said some people are like the hard path. That is to say, their hearts have become calloused. They have turned away from God so many times that they have become impervious to the message of the gospel. That when it is preached to them, it's simply like seed on hard path glances off. And whatever life might have been there, whatever potential there may have been in the earlier years, is now gone. You know, that's what happens. That's how you get calluses, isn't it? You work with your hands and what starts is a blister. And what hurts initially, if you do it enough, eventually becomes calloused and unfeeling. And Paul says that's the way the world has become. The world has become darkened in its understanding. It's become hardened in its heart to the things of God. And he is saying, we must not be like that. We must not walk like that. Now, what happens when your mind becomes futile and your heart becomes hard? What happens to a life like that? What happens to a society like that? Well, the most powerful picture of it that you will find anywhere in Scripture is in Romans chapter 1. So if you keep your finger there in Ephesians and turn for a moment to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look beginning at verse 18. Now, we don't have time to unpack this whole section. And there are going to be some things in here that you're going to have questions about. And all I can say is just hold on to your questions. And try to get the overall picture, really, of what Paul is saying here. Of the kind of picture that he is trying to portray. Don't get caught up, in other words, on the details. Not that the details are unimportant, but we just don't have time to go into them today. So Paul in chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Now, this is a picture of a downhill spiral. As I said, I don't have time to go into the details, and I know there are some details here, that are hot-button issues, but I just want you to get an overall picture of what Paul is saying. When the heart becomes calloused, when the mind becomes darkened, what happens? Things do not self-correct, is what he's saying. So here is the spiral. The first thing that happens, he says, is that God reveals himself to mankind. His attributes have been clearly seen in the things that have been made. This is what theologians refer to as general revelation. God makes Himself known in the things that have been made. Now, what Paul is saying is that there's no excuse for atheism. Now, agnosticism is another matter, and we'd have to get into that. But atheism, the idea that you simply don't believe that there is a God or any evidence for that, Paul would say that is absolutely rubbish. You know, it's interesting to note, there's a wonderful book, if you really want to get into this, one of the best books I have ever read on the subject is by Alistair McGrath, McGrath, who's a professor at Oxford University. And he is a professor of science and faith. Uh, He's the chair of of, of, of this new chair that's been established, and it deals with just that subject. And the book is called Surprised by Meaning. Surprised by Meaning. By Alistair McGrath. It was a series of lectures that he gave at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And it is fantastic. And one of the things that he points out is that there is actually more evidence to support belief in the existence of God now at the dawn of the 21st century than at any other point in history. Far from undermining a belief in God, science has actually done much to prove that there is a God. Now, of course, when you're dealing with general revelation, That simply means that God is revealing Himself in the things that have been made. God is making Himself known in nature. That doesn't tell us what kind of a God exists, but it does tell us that a God exists. The very fact that physicists speak of the laws of nature. The laws of nature imply a lawgiver. So what Paul is saying is that God has made Himself known, at least His existence, in the things that have been made. So that if you look at the universe around you, you can see that it is a universe that is constantly changing, and yet there is an ordered change in the universe. We are hardwired, C.S. Lewis pointed this out in the opening chapters of Mere Christianity. We are hardwired for worship. He said it can be the most sophisticated society in the world, it can be the most primitive society in the world, and what you'll discover is the most sophisticated people and the most primitive people nevertheless have this desire to worship. He said, where does that desire come from? It is hardwired into us. And so what Paul is saying is that God has made himself known in the things that have been made. He has made his existence known. But he goes on to say the wrath of God is revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness what? Suppress the truth. He said it's not a case of being ignorant. He said, if you look around you at the world today, now you may not understand, as I said, what kind of a God exists, because the same God who paints that beautiful sunset over the the Ashley River is also the same God that allows tornadoes and hurricanes and natural catastrophes. So we have to take that into consideration. But, Paul says, it's obvious to anybody who's willing to look at it that there is somebody up there. But there is a power beyond ourselves, a higher truth. He said, but people, rather than accepting that and seeking that God, do what? They suppress the truth. They're not ignorant of the truth. They suppress it. And the result is that God's wrath is upon them, God's judgment. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So God makes Himself known. They suppress the truth, they exchange the truth of God for a lie, they become darkened. That's the way that it's put here, darkened in their minds. Their foolish hearts became darkened, futile in their thinking. The Greek word here is another interesting word, it is the word moros, from which we get our term moron or moronic. When they exchange the truth of God for a lie, they suppress the truth about God, they become moronic in their thinking. And how does that flush itself out? Well, what happens is they begin to worship created things rather than the creature. Or they worship created things rather than the creator. Do we see that in our culture? Now, oftentimes when we think of that, we think of people worshiping idols made of stone or wood but we are living in a material world. Isn't that what the song says? We are living in a material world, and I am a material girl, or boy, or whatever it may be. We are obsessed with stuff. And so these things become the most important things in our lives. The acquisition of wealth. A successful person is a person who what? Dies with the most toys. So Paul says this is the downhill spiral. And so what happens when they begin to worship created things rather than the Creator? This is the most damning thing of all. We're told God gives them up. See, we have a tendency to think that God gives up on us, but that's not the case at all. What God actually does is He lets us do what we want to do. If that's what we want to do, God gives us up to the following of our passions. And That's what Romans 1 says. God simply gave them up. He let them do the very thing that they wanted to do. Somebody once said, a person is who they really are when they are free to do what they really want. And so they said, we want to be free. Well, God lets them be free, lets them do the very thing that they want. And this is when all of a sudden things begin to pick up speed. It becomes a race to the bottom. They begin to act in an unnatural way. Because they are worshipping created things, they begin to act like creatures, even like animals. They begin to exchange natural relationships for unnatural relationships. They become filled with every manner of wickedness and evil. And finally, you know you're at the very bottom or very close to the bottom when they not only approve of evil, but they invent ways of doing evil and applaud those who practice them. And that's the downhill spiral. Now, you can ask your Self, you can answer the question for yourself, are we there? Well, the question is, well, what can be done about it? Because that's a very bad place for a society to be. It's a very dangerous place for a society to be. So what is to be done about it? Well, Paul says, it's up to us. We are not to be like that. We are to walk out of step with the world. Now, in order to walk out of step with the world, you need to see the world as God sees it. And that's how God sees it in Romans chapter 1, as incredibly corrupt, as a world that is perishing and dying, a world which has darkened its mind and hardened its heart to the things of God. We can't have any false illusions about this. We need to realize it for what it is. We need to recognize the spiritual blindness, this blindness that comes to the hardening of the heart wonderful story about William Wilberforce and William Pitt the Younger. Uh, you all knew who William Wilberforce was? Uh, a great social reformer in England, member of, of Parliament, who campaigned tirelessly for the emancipation of slaves within the British Empire. And uh, really, almost single-handedly, was responsible for that. Uh, but he worked hand-in-glove with William Pitt the Younger, who was Prime Minister at one time, and his father had been Prime Minister as well. And uh, they worked uh, close together, and they became friends. But one of the things that really bothered Wilberforce, who was a devout Christian, was that Pitt just didn't seem to be particularly interested in spiritual matters. He was a member of the Church of England, because you had to be. But he really wasn't interested in spiritual matters. And Wilberforce just loved Pitt so much and saw so much promise in him. He was determined to get him converted, and he knew just the man to do it. Wilberforce had been converted through the preaching of a man by the name of Richard Cecil. And he thought that if he could just get Pitt to hear Cecil preach, that would make all the difference. Sometimes that's what people will say. If I could just get so-and-so in here to hear you preach, and then you think, oh boy, the pressure's on. And then they come in there, and you hit a foul ball. And, And they're like, oh well, you know. And I think that's the way Wilberforce thought, but he thought, if I could just get Pitt into here, Cecil, Cecil was an intelligent man, he was an articulate, powerful preacher, this will make all the difference. But Cecil always put him off, always put him off. But finally, he relented. He said, all right, Wilberforce, I will go and I will hear this man preach. At which point, Wilberforce got very nervous. He thought, oh, what if he hits a foul ball? I mean, you know, he's got to be on today. And so the whole way to church, Wilberforce confessed in his diary, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed that Cecil would be on. And he said, Cecil was magnificent. It was one of the most powerful sermons Cecil had ever preached. And he could tell. He could tell that Pitt was engaged. He was listening to every word, every syllable that came out of Cecil's mouth. And when the church service ended, they were walking home together and not a word was spoken between the two. And finally, Wilberforce couldn't take it anymore and he turned to Pitt and he said, well, what did you think? And Pitt said, he's a powerful speaker. He ought to be in Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, but I've got to be honest with you, Wilberforce. I didn't understand a word that man said. See, that's the seed that falls on the hard soil. And it glances off. And we are not to be like that. What's the hope for the world? Well, the hope for the world is that we will walk out of step with that world. Not be like the Romans and do like the Romans, but be different. Have our minds enlightened by the gospel. Our hearts softened by the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. We are to live differently. This is what Jesus meant when He said, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? What good is it except to be thrown out and trampled under feet? Now, somebody might say, well, salt never loses its saltiness. Sodium chloride is a very stable... I understand all of that. But in Jesus' day, salt was a powdery substance that was found around the Dead Sea. They called it salt, but it contained salt and a host of other things. And when the rains would come, the monsoon season in the spring, they do get rain down there near the Dead Sea. When the rains would come, it would wash the sodium chloride, the salt, out and leave behind the powdery substance. It still looked like salt, but it didn't taste like salt. And therefore, it had no real function. In that day, salt was designed to do what? It was meant to be a preservative in an age before refrigeration. It was to preserve the meat. Stem the tide of decay and putrefaction. And Jesus is saying, we are the salt of the earth. That's our job in a world that is spiraling down. That is what we are to do. We are to be rubbed into the culture in such a way that we help to stem the tide of decay. But what happens if the salt loses the saltiness? What happens if we are living as the Romans do? What will happen to the world? How many of you have ever seen the Star Wars series. The first one. The very first one that came out in 1977. Every hand ought to be up. I mean, come on. This is, this is a, a cultural icon. 1977. I remember going to see it with my grandmother. She was, like, she was like William Pitt when she came out. She said, I didn't understand a word that went on in that movie. But there's that wonderful scene at the beginning where they... Darth Vader comes on board that ship, they've captured the ship, and and Princess Leia takes the rebel battle plans and she puts it in the droid R2-D2 and sends him off an escape pod. And He's to find Obi-Wan Kenobi, this Jedi Knight who is their only hope. Remember that scene? Well, here's a little, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. The rebels were in a desperate situation. Unless Obi-Wan Kenobi came out of retirement and helped them, what? Their cause would be lost. Listen, folks, Paul is saying the church is the world's only hope. That's why we're here. We are not to live as the Romans do. We are to live differently. We are to walk out of step with the culture, out of step with the world. We are to be salt. We are to be light so that people can see in us something different. We're not to be hard of heart, darkened in our understanding. Now, specifically, what does that look like to walk out of step with the world? Well, that's what Paul talks about in verses 25 through 32. That's where he talks about putting off and putting on. When I was the senior associate at St. Helena's in Beaufort before I became the rector, when I first arrived there, I discovered that the man I was working for, the rector, the Reverend Frank Limehouse, before he went into the ministry, his family had been haberdashers. They had owned a clothing store up in Orangeburg, a men's clothing store, a very fine clothing store. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember Max's men's store up on King Street. It was that kind of a shop, really high quality, nice traditional men's clothing. Yeah, crawl checks, right, exactly. <laughs> and it was interesting because uh, when I went to work for Frank, he said, um, We had our first meeting, he said, Now I'm going to give you a book and I want you to read this book. And then we're going to discuss it. Now, thinking, Well, I'm going to work for this guy in this important parish. I assumed he was going to give me a book on theology. <laughs> Incidentally, when I hire a new clergyman, that's what I always do I always assign them a book to be read. And normally it's The Theology of the English Reformers by Philip Hughes. I think that's, that's a good primer. This is what I'm about. You ought to take a look at this and see what it's all about, and, and then we'll come back and we'll discuss it. So I was expecting something like that. Instead, he handed me a book entitled You Are What You Wear. <laughs> I don't know if that was a commentary on my, you know, my closet or what, but at any rate, he wanted me to read this book, You Are What You Wear. And I thought, oh. But I was obedient, and I went ahead and I read it, and I found it to be very enlightening. There was a great deal of practical truth in that, that what you wear is a reflection in some ways of what and who you are. Now, we live in a casual culture today. I realize that. And we also live in an age of self-expression today. I realize that. But even so, there are certain kinds of attire that give a person a sense of what you do and what you were all about. For example, when I'm walking down the street with this collar on, everybody knows what I do. It's interesting, sometimes when I'm walking down the street, past parishioners, without the collar, I'll say hi, and they'll say hi. Oh, oh, sorry, I didn't even recognize you. But they see the collar coming, they immediately recognize me, don't they? You know what I do. My uniform designates my responsibilities. Same thing is true for medical professionals. When you see somebody walking around town in a restaurant in scrubs, you know that that person is probably probably in the medical profession, a doctor, a nurse, or a dentist, or somebody like that. Police officers, likewise. You see them in a uniform, you know exactly what they do. They're part of the law enforcement community. The military, you see the same thing. Even prisoners. When you see those guys out on the side of the road, in those orange suits, picking up trash, you know what they do. And what's the first thing that happens? Once a prisoner has done his time and he is released, he hands in that suit of clothes for what? Another suit of clothes that are reflective of his new status. Let me tell you, clothes influence behavior. I was once traveling with another clergyman one day and um, we were in a hurry to get someplace and he um, pulled out in front of a lady, and she laid on the horn. She laid on the horn, and then she proceeded to give us the universal sign of peace. (laughs) I'm sure you understand what that is without me. And Then she caught a glimpse of me, at which point I simply went, And I thought she would wreck the car. She said, oh, gosh! (laughs) Clothes will influence your behavior. Let me tell you something. When we go to weddings, we wear a particular type of clothing, don't we? We act in a particular way. We wear bright-colored clothing. When we go to a funeral, we don't dress in florals. We dress in somber attire, don't we? Even today. So we recognize that... What we are is reflected in what we wear. Well, Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying you have put off the lie. That's the way he puts it. You have put off the lie, the lie of this world, that by gaining all of this knowledge, you can likewise attain to wisdom. He said you have put that off and you have put on Christ. And your new clothing ought to be reflective of a new life. That's what it means to walk out of step with the world. If you have put on Christ, do you live differently? Does your new attire reflect who you really are in Jesus Christ? Well, that's the great question. And we'll explore it in greater detail next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we do live in difficult times, people are suppressing the truth, they are seeking after their own ways, they are worshiping the creatures rather than the Creator. Grant us the grace to not live as the Romans do, but to walk out of step with this world, not just for the purpose of being different, but for the purpose of showing people what true life, true joy, true peace is really all about. Enlighten our minds. Don't let them become futile and dark. Enlighten them by the grace of your Holy Spirit. Help us to seek after wisdom, true wisdom, not mere knowledge. And soften our hearts. If our hearts are becoming hardened to the things of God, break up that soil, Lord. Take away our hearts of stone. And in your mercy, give us a heart of flesh that we may love you and follow hard after you, as salt and light in this darkened and dying world for Jesus sake. Amen. Thank you. You do have on your calendar for April 14th at the